You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. And welcome to the 1952nd edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 26th of October 2023. The editor of this edition is Liz Roberts, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Sue Harrington-Spear and Harvey Johnson. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Storm Babette hits Suffolk. Safety fears at town bus station lead to closure of waiting room. Joachim's ABC of marathons. They truly deserve the accolades bestowed. A major incident was declared across Suffolk last Friday due to heavy downpours from Storm Babette sweeping through the county. Suffolk County Council asked residents to travel only if essential after the storm caused significant disruption across the region, with schools forced to close and roads left impassable. A Met Office yellow weather warning was put in place for the entire county until 6am on Saturday. Red flood alerts were issued for a number of Suffolk rivers, while firefighters were called out to deal with a string of flooding incidents. One of the worst affected towns was Needham Market, which saw several homes flooded in the early hours of the day. Framlingham was another place that was severely affected by the torrential rain. Villagers from Hondon in West Suffolk were unable to leave their homes due to water gushing down the country lanes. Lower Road in the village was blocked entirely due to flooding. The A140, the street between Yaxton and Stonhams, was also flooded on Friday morning and the A1120 flooded both ways between Stowmarket Road and the A14 at Stow Upland. And the A11 in West Suffolk was also closed for a period of time to allow for standing water to clear from this major route. A number of villages and towns also experienced power cuts, with hundreds of homes in East Suffolk being left without electricity. According to weather expert Dan Holly from WeatherQuest, Suffolk saw some of the heaviest rainfall across East Anglia. Storm Babette brought the best out of Suffolk's heroes as farmers, volunteers and emergency services leapt into action. Community leaders have expressed their gratitude for the countless acts of community spirit which saw elderly residents rescued from their homes, school children safely reunited with parents and refuge centres quickly established. Farmers in tractors and 4x4 drivers waded through flood water as heavy rains flooded towns and villages, while one man used a homemade paddle boat built for his grandchildren to rescue elderly neighbours. Councillor Matthew Hicks, Suffolk County Council's leader, said, While some communities were relatively unscathed by Storm Babette, the destruction and disruption it has caused in many areas of Suffolk cannot be underestimated. I would like to thank the Blue Light Services, Highways and Council staff for their hard work in such difficult circumstances. But most of all, I wish to thank Suffolk's wonderful volunteers and members of the community who stepped up and helped each other. 
they demonstrated a truly special quality inherent in the people of Suffolk. Storm Babette caused chaos in Devon on Friday, with school children stranded after it was deemed too unsafe to transport them home. Around 50 people were sheltering in the local leisure centre there and sleeping on crash mats overnight, staff said. Leaping to the rescue, Simon O'Brien used his homemade paddleboat to rescue elderly neighbours who had been left trapped in their homes by the floodwater. His partner Mary Scott said it's been sitting in the garden all summer, waiting for an opportunity to launch. His family have teased him mercilessly about its seaworthiness, but it floats and came in very useful. Days after the deluge of storm Babettes, which left many areas of Suffolk impassable, one town street has begun to see signs of normality. Needham Market was one of the worst affected areas, with flooding leaving much of the town impassable. On Friday, eight-year-old Peter Groom went and fetched a wooden board to push water into drains. The Foxglove Avenue residents said, I was out to lunch on Friday at the Lion Pub. Water was coming up opposite there, so I quickly went home and saw deep water on Hargrave Avenue. I went back with my wooden board to help push water into the drains. I've never seen so much water in my 40 years in Foxglove. A couple of houses were flooded on the other side, and we couldn't do anything to stop it. It was coming down so fast. It was about a foot and a half deep, half the way up my boots. I saw deep water when we moved here in the 1970s, but nothing so bad. Writing in his column, Councillor Matthew Hicks, leader of Suffolk County Council, said that more than a month's worth of average October rainfall for Suffolk fell within a 24-hour period. Mr Hicks said the coming weeks will see questions asked of the way Storm Babette was anticipated and whether anything could have been done to lessen the impact, and an investigation will take place in due course. The waiting room at Bury St Edmunds bus station is set to shut due to safety concerns for passengers after months of violence and antisocial behaviour. West Suffolk Council has announced that the waiting room at the station in St Andrew Street North will close from November the 1st, but the public toilets will remain open. The council, which manages the building, has been working since March to support the police in dealing with ongoing issues of fighting, antisocial behaviour and other crime at the waiting room, but the issues have continued. Councillor David Taylor, Cabinet Member for Operations at the Council, said it was with a heavy heart he had made the decision to close the waiting room. He said, I've no doubt that sitting in that bus station waiting room with punch-ups and other violence taking place can not only be extremely intimidating, but can cause many people fear and anxiety. The Council has a legal duty to the safety of anyone using our buildings and to take necessary action where we can to address any problems that arise. He said the Council had been working to support the police in dealing with ongoing issues of fighting, antisocial behaviour, shoplifting and criminal damage at the waiting room since March this year and would continue to assist the force. While police have increased patrols and issued dispersal orders, the problems have persisted. Bury St Edmunds Police Inspector Andy Beebe said the police wanted to ensure the community felt safe and confident in reporting this issue to him. We do not underestimate the negative impact it has on residents, including their mental well-being, he said. 
a Berries and Edmonds marathon runner, has completed a decade-long challenge to run an event starting with each letter of the alphabet. Joachim Benford, from Morton Hall, completed his last marathon in Quebec on October the 1st, after taking on his first one in October 28, 2013. Though most of his runs have been in the UK, the 38-year-old has also gone to Greece, Canada, Holland, Switzerland and even Lithuania to get the letters he needed to complete the set. He said, I signed up for my first marathon about 10 years ago and it was my introduction to running as never done it before. My wife and I went over to Dublin and I ran its marathon and 18 months later I ran the London marathon. It was whilst I was training for that with a friend that I said jokingly, I could do one for each letter of the alphabet. It was a throwaway comment, but it grew from there. If you're wondering about some of the more interesting letters during his challenge, Joachim ran in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, Zurich in Switzerland, Utrecht in the Netherlands, as well as a marathon in Jersey. He said, X was a difficult one. But I found that unless I wanted to go to the likes of Mexico or China, my options were limited. But some running clubs do named marathons, so I looked into that. There's a running club in London called Phoenix Running Club, and every April they do an ex-Phoenix marathon, so that is how I managed to tick that one off the list. Athens was quite challenging, as I'd gone into it a bit injured, and despite it being run in November, it was also unseasonably hot, more than 27 degrees from 9am, so that was a struggle. But it did end in the Olympic Stadium, which was amazing. The runner's next challenge is to take on the North Downs Way, 50, in May 2024, a 50-mile point-to-point ultramarathon along the North Downs Way National Trail, starting at Farnham in Surrey to Knockholt Pound on the outskirts of Greater London. He said, I run to keep myself fit, physically and mentally, to give myself a bit of headspace. I have the run in May and may still do the occasional marathon to see a different city in Europe, but I won't be stopping and will absolutely carry on running. Nearly 200 students who have seized every single opportunity with both hands celebrated their achievements with family, friends and tutors as they graduated in a prestigious ceremony. The resilience and tenacity of students were celebrated as they graduated in a cathedral ceremony at the weekend. The 179 student graduates, I'm sorry, from University Studies at West Suffolk College received their scrolls in front of families, friends, loved ones, teachers and college staff at St Edmundsbury Cathedral on Saturday. 45 gained first-class honours and 54 achieved either an HND or HNC qualification at the Bury St Edmunds event. Dr Nikov Savos, CEO of the Eastern Education Group, which includes West Suffolk College, Abigate Sixth Form, One Sixth Form and University Studies at West Suffolk College said, What education gives is an opportunity to grow and develop as a person, as a citizen and as a professional. What we give our students are the skills and the confidence to grab the opportunities to grow. I am so proud of this class of 2023. They have seized every single opportunity with both hands. They have demonstrated resilience, tenacity, and seeing them grow into the graduates they are today gives all of us an incredible sense of pride. They truly deserve the awards and accolades bestowed on them today. 
These are individuals who want to go on and help themselves, support our community and create opportunity. And the qualifications, connections and character strengths that they have worked tirelessly to gain will be a fantastic platform from which they can open doors. Education is a gift and should be cherished. I am immensely proud of everyone here today. Dr Elspeth Lees, Executive Dean of University Studies at West Suffolk College, said, It's always an incredibly emotional time to see our students proudly step up to receive their degrees amidst the backdrop of the iconic cathedral. Massive congratulations to everyone. Ellie Parker, 21, of Bury St Edmunds, studied on a business and management degree and achieved a first-class degree. Ellie said, I chose university studies at West Suffolk College as I wanted to stay local. It was Bury, or not at all. During the course, we had some great guest lecturers and worked with a charity called Go Get Sober, helping them on a marketing project. The lecturers were incredible and the class sizes were relatively small in comparison with other universities, so I think this personalised way of learning really helped me and others on the programme. I was ecstatic when I found out I'd got a first. I'm currently working at a post office in Bury, which I greatly enjoy. That said, I am looking for the next challenge in my career where I can utilise all the skills that learnt during my studies. Outside of work, I love baking, so a dream for me would be to open up a bakery or go on the Great British Bake Off. I never thought university would be for me as I'm such a home person, but I'm proud I did it and wouldn't rule out further study in the future. I was recently awarded an Academic Excellence Award. I'm incredibly proud to be awarded this by the university as I believe it has recognised my overall commitment to learning. The hard work paid off. Speaking before the ceremony, she added, I can't wait to share my graduation moment with my partner and family. I have so much to thank them for. This degree is ours. This university for me was perfect and this will be a brilliant way to end the experience. Bury St Edmunds MP Jo Churchill has come under pressure to confirm her support for stronger renter rights. Last Friday, campaign group 38 Degrees drove a billboard around the town which read, Jo Churchill MP, do you support better rights for renters? It followed a report in a national newspaper that Mrs Churchill is a landlord herself and among five senior Conservatives accused of holding up the long-awaited rental reform bill, giving greater protection, beg your pardon, giving greater protection to tenants over eviction. Veronica Hawking, head of campaigns at 38 Degrees, said, Tenants in Berries and Edmonds and across the country are struggling, and the reform they've been promised still hasn't appeared. MPs who make money as landlords have double responsibility to bring forward renting reform without delay, not just to their constituents, but to their tenants too. 38 Degrees supporters were concerned to hear reports that Joe Churchill might be involved in slowing down this urgently needed law. So he came to the streets of Berries and Edmonds to invite her to put an end to these rumours and make her support for local tenants completely clear. According to the campaign group, 17.6% of people in Bury rent from a private landlord, and the number of households who rent privately grew by 32.1% between 2011 and 2021. They say 10% of renters in the constituency are struggling to pay rent. 
The group has launched a national petition calling for help from Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Housing Minister Michael Gove. The petition states, There are now more people renting than paying off mortgages, yet they are still being ignored by the government. After four years of broken promises, rental reform proposals were finally published in May, but no one has seen them since. And the longer the ministers delay, the more renters suffer. According to the government's register of members' financial interests, Mrs Churchill rents out a house in Grantham, owned jointly with her husband. Until February this year, the couple owned three flats in the town which they rented out. Joe Churchill has been approached for comment. Suffolk Rural Coffee Caravan Chief Executive Anne Osborne has been awarded an honorary degree to mark her work around the country's, around the county's villages. The Rural Coffee Caravan addresses loneliness in the countryside and has gained the attention of government policy makers, the NHS, the Campaign to End Loneliness, national media and academics. Anne is a member of the Eden Project Communities Network and the founder of a community fundraising initiative called 500 Suffolk Reasons, which helps local people who are facing a financial crisis. Anne moved from urban Hertfordshire to rural Suffolk in 1987. With her husband working away, Anne had sole midweek care of four children, a father with dementia and her elderly mother-in-law. Anne felt incredibly lonely and pushed herself to make social contacts in her local community by joining a parent and toddler group, volunteering as a rainbow guider, a school governor and a classroom assistant. With her children all at university, Anne became the Rural Coffee Caravan's only paid staff member in 2004, in charge of one caravan and a handful of volunteers. Now with well over 60 volunteers, eight paid staff and an entire fleet of caravans, Anne is credited by the founder, Canon Reverend Sally Fogden, OBE, as having been instrumental in the charity's widespread success, helping to make a difference to thousands of isolated and vulnerable people across the county. After collecting her degree, she told students, I never ever imagined myself standing here accepting this very special honour. I'm thrilled to accept it, and I do so on behalf of the brilliant Rural Coffee Caravan family. This isn't a job, it's a way of life. Loneliness can affect any of us at any time. It can be transient, it can be chronic, and it can make us ill, both mentally and physically. Connection brings a sense of belonging, of feeling safer, knowing there actually is someone, some people to turn to, to be with, to share experiences with. Conversation is our social glue. It is a thing people told us they missed most during the pandemic. Rolls and rolls of tape has been used to make a monumental cardboard construction that was built and then pulled down on Ipswich Cornhill. French artist Olivier Grossetet, together with Ipswich residents, set up the 16-metre-high construction of Cardinal Wolsey's imagined college gate in Ipswich as a part of the Spill Festival. The gate was made entirely from cardboard and tape and weathered the rain from Storm Barbette as it was pieced together on Saturday. The artist used 20 kilometres of tape, which is almost a distance from Ipswich to Stowmarket. It was built on Saturday, October the 21st, and deconstructed less than 24 hours later, coming down on Sunday at 4pm. 
about 12,000 people took part in the build and deconstruction. Last week, students, school pupils and members of the public helped the artist and his team at the Corn Exchange build certain elements of prefabrication. The construction was then pulled down by a team of about 70 members of the public using a series of heavy ropes that were entwined around the building. Once the gate had hit the ground and was declared safe to approach, another 800 people, mainly children, participated in jumping on the building and pulling it to pieces, then carrying each piece of cardboard to the festival's recycling dumpster. Within one hour, the Cornhill looked completely clean and tidy, as if nothing had happened there. The monumental construction was supported by Thomas Woolsey 550, Ipswich Borough Council and Ipswich Central. A spill festival organiser said before the event, the Cardinal never got to see the designs for his college completed. All that's left of it today is the historic Woolsey Gate on College Street near St Peter's Church. In advance of the event, he said, this October we will finish building it together before gathering for a public demolition, a huge, joyful celebration of Ipswich and its people. And the article is accompanied by a photograph, which I must say shows this amazing construction made only of cardboard and sticky tape looking entirely believable. Mm -hmm. And even with a number of people standing underneath the gateway, it is enormous, or I should say, it was enormous. <laughs> a vehicle recycling business has pulled out of a proposed village de development which attracted fierce opposition. Copart UK, which remarkets and recycles vehicles, was looking to open a new 68-acre supercentre in Stanton, creating between 100 and 120 jobs. Property developer Janik bought 91 acres at the former RAF airfield at Shepherd's Grove from Property Recycling Group PLC and took on an existing contract to sell land to Copart for its largest centre in the UK. In January, Janik submitted a hybrid application for the site, which includes a new roundabout on the A143 with a link road to the Shepherd's Grove West Industrial Area, allowing HGV vehicles vehicles from there to enter and exit directly onto the A143 rather than through Stanton, as is currently the case. However, Copart has served notice with Janik and will not be pursuing its proposed development at Shepherd's Grove. The hybrid planning application is still pending with West Suffolk Council. Concerns had been raised about traffic, pollution and damage to the environment. Ben Lord, chairman of Ixworth and Ixworth Thorpe Parish Council, said they were delighted Copart had withdrawn from the site, given how unsuitable Shepherd's Grove was to a business of the proposed scale and size. Ixworth would be affected the most, he said, by the vast majority of traffic from the site. Given the potential material change in the intention for the site, he said that rather than imminent determination, there should be a pause and reconsultation to reflect on the change. While Copart going is a victory, it doesn't mean the battle is over, Councillor Lord said. Roger Spiller, on behalf of environmental group Green Exworth, said Copart's withdrawal was a significant victory for those who had opposed it. To ensure new businesses at the site are appropriate in scale and type of business, we shall stay vigilant and continue cooperating with each other, he said. Jim Thorndyke, chairman of Stanton Parish Council, said the main issue at the moment appeared to be that the road plan, which was the biggest benefit to Stanton, 
were still proceeding. Nick Rumsey, managing director of JNIC, said they were disappointed Copat had withdrawn, but JNIC was still firmly committed to developing the park, and it was vital that the hybrid planning application was granted consent by West Suffolk Council's planning committee. He said, This will enable us to move forward in building a roundabout on the A143, providing access to the site, and most importantly, providing an alternative and direct connection from the A143 for the businesses at Shepherd's Grove West Industrial Estate. This will help provide relief to Stanton from the commercial and HGV traffic that currently routes through the village, and this has just been given the support of Stanton Parish Council. A couple who named their village pub after themselves are remembering great laughs and great times after retiring early this month. Steve Gardner and his wife Jill ran the Gardeners in Tostock for the past 15 years, proudly changing its name from the Gardener's Arms. On October the 3rd, Steve and Jill, who grew up in the village, left the pub and started their retirement, with plans to travel across Europe in an RV. Steve, who joked that he has been working twice as hard in retirement, has been busy in the garden of the couple's home in Elmswell. He said they had not had a chance to miss the pub, which features a stained glass window of their name yet. <coughs> On their last night, Steve said, we had a drink in the, sorry, we had a drink the pub dry night and my regulars didn't let me down. We made a few speeches and said thank you for the support over the years. It was emotional. We were saying goodbye to friends, not just customers. He said, we've had some great laughs and great times along the way and met some lovely people. Steve added that he wished the new landlord and landlady all the success in the world and wanted to say an absolute big thank you to the customers that have supported the pub over the past 15 years. The couple hope to visit the pub for a drink again soon, remembering to keep to the customers' side of the bar. The pub on Church Road in Tostock was built in 1530, and was previously named the Gardener's Arms after Squire Gardener, the squire of the village. A parent has told how she's been forced to take unpaid leave from work due to the extended October break that has been brought in at her child's school. Amy Hollis is among parents who were opposed to Unity School's partnerships proposal to increase the October half-term break from one week to two, which is going ahead this year on a pilot basis across its schools. Amy, whose daughter of six, attends Unity's Copal's Primary Academy in Haverhill, said she and her husband had managed to cover the break with the help of family and by taking some unpaid leave from work, but the situation was not at all ideal. It's just that juggle, rarely, of trying to work and cover childcare, she said. Times are different now. Both parents, to have any sort of life, need to have some work, rarely to make ends meet. Of the unpaid leave, Amy, who works for a building company, said, It's a conversation you don't want to have. It's just lucky. They are understanding. A Berison Edmonds parent, whose daughter attends Unity School Abbott's Green Academy, said she had been forced to take an extra week of annual leave to cover the second week. The parent, who wished to remain anonymous, said she had generally been in favour of a two-week break, although this was on the proviso the school would make efforts to offer childcare for the extra week. However, she said it became apparent a holiday club would only be available at the school for the first week. While on the one hand she gets to spend that week off with her child, she said on the other, the second week falls at a time when many tourist attractions have already closed for the year. 
she added, without support from the school to offer childcare in that problem second week of half term, I feel this policy has a very negative impact on working and single parent families and serves more to fulfil the desires of school staff. Both this parent and Amy said they welcomed further consultation, which Unity has said will take place in the spring term, ahead of deciding whether to make this change permanent. A Unity spokesman said one of the main reasons the extended break was proposed was to look at reducing traditionally high absent rates in the second half of the autumn term, and also as a way of addressing recruitment challenges. A Berries and Edmunds clergyman has retired after more than three decades serving the Morton Hall community. The Reverend Jonathan Ford led his last service at Christ Church on Sunday, having arrived in post back in September 1990, before the church even had its own building. After Mr Ford galvanised countrywide fundraising, Christ Church in Lawson Place was ready for worship by the end of 1993, and extended in 1997. Now he is leaving a thriving church community. As well as leading Christ Church, Mr Ford spent 22 years on the General Synod, while another career highlight was organising the Passion Plays in Bury St Edmunds. He is retiring to Thurston, where he hopes to see more of his family, write his second novel and spend time painting. A mother and daughter have opened a new cafe on a Bury St Edmunds estate, which aims to be a safe haven for those who have food allergies. Linda Stiles and daughter Clara held a soft opening for Clara's at the Lake Avenue shopping precinct on the Mildenhall Road estate on October the 6th and 7th, with the cafe now open Tuesday to Saturday, 8am to 4pm. The pair opened the cafe with the aim of creating an allergy-friendly environment as both suffer from certain food allergies. Linda said, Clara has had both severe environmental allergies and food allergies and whenever we took her anywhere there was always a risk that she would get ill and she had been ill quite regularly. So with this business we're coming to it with our experience of allergies and really try to provide a safe environment for people to eat out. Also, we really want a nice community cafe to help with the mental health of the community. A community always needs some place to go. The soft opening menu includes a full English breakfast, jacket potatoes, hot sandwiches, cakes and baked goods, coffee and milkshakes. Linda added, we're keeping it simple at first and then we're going to do as many things that can be changed to alternatives. So there's a vegan alternative, gluten-free alternative, dairy-free alternatives and some cake that are egg-free. We're a nut-free environment. We provide almond milk and we can use almond flour, but in terms of the main tree nuts, we're keeping nut-free in here to bring that risk down. For Clara, who has nut and dairy allergies, it was difficult when she was younger to feel safe while eating out. She said, it can be a bit of a nightmare. I could go to the same place three or four times and be absolutely fine, have the same food, and it could be that on another day something has been cross-contaminated and then I'll get ill. It's always a question of, do I risk going back? As I've got older, I will go back to places, but when I was younger, I did end up quite scared. I wouldn't go to new places. Both Linda and Clara have a passion for baking and cooking, and Linda has helped out in her husband's security business, but this was her opportunity to start her own venture, something she'd wanted to do for the last 15 to 20 years. On opening, Linda said, It feels amazing. We'd been looking to be open since the end of July, 
That was our original plan. It's taken us all of the summer holidays and then some. In the future, the pair want to grow the business by offering delivery and allergen-friendly catering. In the coming winter, they hope to offer Sunday lunches and may also open later. Markets in West Suffolk are being promoted with quirky new bike signs. Twelve butcher shop style bicycles with bespoke signage attached have been put in place by West Suffolk Council. The bicycles have come from Cycle of Good, a social enterprise which refurbishes old Royal Mail bicycles. For each of these bicycles purchased, Cycle of Good donates a bike to those in need in Malawi. A professional singer, vocal coach and author who grew up in Bury St Edmunds is to hold singing workshops this week and aims to prove anyone can do it. Sophie Garner, 50, from Northampton, will run a one-day singing workshop called Vinyl Voices Rewind, 80s, on October the 28th at the New Green Centre in Thurston. Sophie, who found her love of singing at a young age, will teach participants breathing exercises before they tackle three 1980s hits which are kept a secret until the day. There will also be tea, coffee, cake and biscuits and a glass of Prosecco or a soft drink on arrival. She said, it's an incredible day. Anyone that wants to sing that has always wanted to release their 80s child, this is the most amazing place to do it because I'm a really supportive vocal teacher. At the end, we sing the songs together. We listen to it because I record them on my phone. Most people in the workshops that have, I've done leave wanting to hit the nearest karaoke machine or join a choir. People feel very differently about singing and more importantly, they feel very differently about their confidence in their own voices. Sophie grew up in a dysfunctional household and missed days of school when she attended the King Edward VI school, but she also had a dream to be a singer. She attended the National Youth Theatre of Great Britain in London in the early 90s, at the same time as Matt Lucas. From there, she decided that singing was her first love and found a band. She was the first person to perform at the O2 Arena while supporting the Sugar Babes and McFly and had the opportunity to travel around the world. She has released four albums and written two books, The Creative Songwriting Journal and If You Can't Say It, Sing It. She's also been a vocal coach for ITV's The Voice Kids and has featured and performed on BBC Radio and TV. Next year she hopes to run more workshops in Bury and across the country, which focuses on the 70s, 90s and 2000s. See you there, Harvey. <laughs> of course. Tree surgeons were left shocked after the scale of one of their jobs turned out to be a tree that had fallen onto a house. Leon Brown Arb Agri Contracting, based in Great Barton near Bury St Edmunds, received notice of the job in Thurston last Tuesday. Owner Leon Brown had taken the call, but as he was on holiday, he asked his team to visit the home the following day. Luke Ames, who works for the business, said they had to cancel their planned jobs for the day to tackle cutting the tree. He said it was a shock. We had two jobs booked in that day. Leon had told me it must have been as he got the call and said there was a tree that had fallen on the house. I thought, we'll just swing by and see what we're dealing with. And so it was massive. After cancelling their other jobs for the day, the team got to work on the effort. They secured the tree in order to make sure it didn't fall any more before lifting it out of the place. Fortunately, the homeowners were not in at the time, but noticed the incident had happened on their doorbell camera. 
They were fine, added Luke. I think there was one lady in the house at the time. The woman told me that she was under the tree raking the beech nuts ten minutes before it happened. <laughs> a new tapestry was unveiled last weekend as part of a commemoration of 850 years since the destruction of Hawley Castle. The castle was destroyed in October 1173 when it was torn down during a dispute between King Henry II and his son, also called Henry, who raised an army of local barons and mercenaries from Flanders to fight his father's army. The Flemish army crossed the North Sea and when they reached Hawley, together with local rebels, they attacked the king's castle at Hawley's and burnt it. A few days later they were defeated by the king's army at Fornham near Bury St Edmunds. The tapestry involved several months of work from people, including the village's knitting groups and others from the churches or congregation. It illustrates the story of the castle's destruction in 1173. The commemoration at Hawley Church also saw a launch of a new book by Dr Mike Walker called A Hard and Grievous Battle, The Siege of Hawley Castle and the Battle of Fornham in 1173. There was also a flower display, hot drinks, cakes and live music. And now for our ever popular reader's letters. <laughs> and my first letter is by Willoughby Goddard. And Willoughby writes, The proposed development of warehousing and damaged car storage by Janik Copart and Equation at Shepherd's Grove in Stanton are completely out of step with the rural environment. The proposed number of jobs created and vehicle movement suggested by the developers are sheer fantasy. Since when does a modern warehouse, even a very large one, employ over 2,000 staff? The increase in traffic along the already crowded A143 is going to be a massive problem. These kind of activities should be based along trunk roads. Why does Suffolk County Council allow more and more developments and house building to be sanctioned with no regard for the infrastructure? Rural roads in West Suffolk, like the A143, are already busy. Take a drive through Stanton, Ixworth and Great Barton any morning around 8am or evening around 5pm to see for yourselves. Then add 25 to 30% more traffic to this. It is madness. Every local parish and the vast majority of local residents oppose these plans, so public opinion has spoken. If you live in any of the villages around Stanton and object to these proposals, make your views known to the SCC planning portal. Without infrastructure changes, these developments should be thrown out. And now we've got a unique statue long overdue. So Peter Wyler's letter, reminding us of Benjamin Britten's affection for Lowestoft, his birthplace, was very well made. Without doubt, his genius would have been influenced by his surroundings during childhood, and it's gratifying to have it confirmed that he continued to acknowledge this throughout his life. The project to erect a statue of him outside his home is a wonderful idea and long overdue. I hope that the target required to do so will soon be reached. What appeals to me most about the plan to erect a statue is it will, rather uniquely, depict Britain as a young boy rather than as a grown adult. The reason behind this is noteworthy. As well as recognising Lowestoft's part in Britain's development, it is hoped that the statue will be a symbol of encouragement for every local child to follow their dreams and achieve their ambitions. Zeb Soans, one of the original conceivers of the statue, related this tale about his own Lowestoft childhood at the recent Wigmore Hall Gala fundraising concert. 
When he saw his career adviser at school and expressed his desire to work in radio or television, he was told his best bet to achieve his ambition was to go and work in the Sanyo factory. <laughs> he chose to ignore this advice and has become a successful broadcaster and author whilst remaining as proud of his Lowestoft roots as Benjamin Britten clearly was. And that letter was written by Keith Brown from London. And the next letter is written by John Davies of Berries and Edmonds. I see in the October the 6th issue of the Berry Free Press that members of West Suffolk Council have concern over gender equality within the Cabinet. And the final sentence, a quote from Councillor Donna Higgins, was, it's the choice of the people who voted for them. This made me ask the question, what choice do the voters have in elections nowadays? The party or person we are allowed to vote for has been chosen for us. So I say it is time to change our voting system so that we have a choice of four same party, that is two male and two female candidates. This could be achieved by combining constituencies for voting purposes only. In this year's Berrytown Council elections, the voters in Eastgate Ward had a choice of only two candidates and in Westgate Ward just three. In all the eight wards, there was only one Liberal Democrat and no Green Party candidate. What sort of choice was that for the voters? I read that 130 voting papers had no mark. Did the would-be voters decide that there was no party or any party person on the voting paper they wanted to vote for? Some people may be happy with what we have now, but I think it is time for a change. Indeed. And this letter comes from Robert Newson of Carlton Colville. Uh, he says, I have a favourite TV channel called Talking Pictures. This channel shows old movies and TV shows from the 40s, 50s and 60s, most of which I saw in my early teens, and which by modern standards could be described as bland. I turned to this channel shortly after watching, in glorious technicolour, the violence and graphic descriptions of the barbarity of the Hamas group and the inevitable hard response of the Israelis. This was all on the rolling news channel, hour after hour. On Talking Pictures, prior to showing the old programmes, is a warning that some context shows outdated attitudes and language which may offend some viewers. I have never heard anything in these programmes I would describe as offensive, but it just shows how we now pander into the growing band of snowflakes and people who find odd words and phrases more horrifying than real death and destruction. No doubt they all now carry smelling salts in case they come into contact with the real world. Mm. Graham Day of Store Market uh, writes this article. Sitting outside a cafe in the butter market in Ipswich recently, I was pleased to see that a poster had been placed on the board surrounding the former British Home Stores store, depicting Woolsey addressing a large group of children at an Ipswich primary school. They appeared to be spellbound, and at last I thought the Woolsey 550 project is working to educate future generations about Ipswich's most famous son. It was tangible proof that the project is now really up and running. Further along, on the same building, a group of students were effectively whitewashing with paint further boards on the building. And a few days later, in the same location, the same students from one sixth form college were painting murals. The ultimate result is stunning and gives a much needed lift to what is a depressing area. 
And Mrs. Jacqueline Orsop of Lowestop writes about the negative effect of fireworks. She says, I agree with the letter sent in your, in, to your paper by Audrey West from Halesworth, October the 12th, concerning the use of fireworks. Many are traumatised by them, especially those who suffer with PTSD, as the loud bangs trigger memories of conflict. Most animals are affected negatively by them, with some, have, some having to be sedated and some hiding away in fear until the noise stops. My belief is that firework displays should be done professionally and the sale of them to the general public should be prohibited. Also, although Bonfire Night is November the 5th, the sale of fireworks starts much earlier and goes on much longer than necessary. There are injuries to people and animals every year. I find it hard to understand that in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis when many are struggling to feed themselves and their families, money is still wasted on fireworks. Uh, my next letter is headed, Electric Cars in the Floods. Hmm. I'm not a fan of electric cars, but would be very interested in results from the big floods in Suffolk on Friday. While the national news was all about the floods in Scotland and the north, we certainly had heavy rain that caused a lot of flooding in the Suffolk area. I had to drive to the doctors at Bilderston on Friday and had to go through a long stretch of deep water near Great Bricket. Taking another route back via Ofton, the water was even deeper and I hit several logs floating in the water. It was a frightening experience. I did what I was always told in such circumstances and that was to keep the revs high and drive slowly in a low gear, avoiding making any bow waves. Willisham was cut off in all directions by late in the day. I would like to know if those with electric cars broke down in the water more often than petrol or diesel vehicles did. I expect water on any electrics causes failures, so what was the experience of those who unfortunately came to a halt in the floods? I may be wrong, but assume electric cars are at greater risk driving through flooded roads. And that letter was from Brian Wilcox of Willisham. Very interesting. Interesting to get the feedback. Mm, indeed. Now, a story we covered in last week's news talk. The news of a village post office closing its doors for a final time had people typing on social media. So this is from the Chatterbox area. Chrissy Knight, who ran the Ingham post office and stores for the past four and a half years, confirmed the shop was closing for good. Brett Edwards-Turner gave a long-distance message saying, Chrissy and Carl are the best. Miss you lots from sunny California. Kelly Joseph Lilly said, So sad, I had my first job here during the school holidays, refilling the stock in the shop and serving the customers. This was back in early 2000s. JC and Sue were the best ladies to work with, and I used to get a bag of penny sweets after my shifts. Such great memories. Trudy Revere simply said, What an absolute shame. And Graham Sturgeon talked of more prosperous times in England. He said, to think there used to be two shops, two petrol stations, a car dealership, police station and a primary school. That was all when there was less traffic and fewer people living in the village. Paul Johnson gave a stark warning. He said, sign of the times. Use these shops regularly or lose them. It's as simple as that. We're now going to bring you a feature article and it's in two parts. So you get a, you get a rest from my voice halfway through. Archaeologist Basil Brown unearthed some of the greatest treasures ever found in the UK when he discovered the long ship at Sutton Hoo. 
the self-taught archaeologist also had connections with the west of Suffolk. He'd been involved in excavating the Roman settlement at Stanton Chair, near Ixworth, and some eight years after the 1939 Sutton excavation, he unearthed Roman pottery kilns at West Stowe and confirmed the existence of an early Anglo-Saxon settlement there. Bowser Brown also worked at Culford School in a non-teaching capacity, where he encouraged pupils to take an interest in archaeology. Hope you have good finds today, wrote May Brown to her husband Basil. It would be nice to come across something really good and uncommon. Little did she know it, but self-taught archaeologist Basil Brown was about to make history. On that day in May 1939, he was on the brink of unearthing one of the greatest discoveries ever made in the UK. A few days before, he'd cycled away from their cottage and pedalled off down the village street to begin his second spell of excavations at Sutton Hoo. May was replying to a letter that began, I have no real news, but as he dug deeper, with meticulous care, into a huge mound he suspected contained an important burial, the true significance began to become clear. Under the earth lay the ghostly outline of an enormous ship, the last resting place of an Anglo-Saxon king. Later excavations led by Cambridge academics would reveal the iconic Sutton Hoo treasure. In a new book produced for the local history group in Rickinghall, where Basil Brown lived most of his 89 years, we hear a different voice, Basil himself. It reveals, from a uniquely personal point of view, the extraordinary life work of a man whose ability to identify historic sites made him an archaeological legend. Author Sarah Doig lives in part of the former school where Basil began his education. Her kitchen was his infant's classroom. She has scrawled painstakingly through his handwritten diaries, letters and records, and the memories of those who knew him, to tell his story. Her book, The Real Basil Brown, was written on behalf of Quatrefoil, which researches the history of the Ricking Halls, Inferior and Superior, Bottersdale and Redgrave. It is subtitled From Ricking Hall to Sutton Hoo and Back, because there was far more to Basil than his world-famous discovery. Even before his first digs at Sutton Hoo in 1938, he was already the area's go-to man for archaeology and history, says Sarah. Even today, she found, local archaeologists say that wherever they go, Basil got there first. He continued to be a local hero, thought of with pride and affection, for the rest of his life. Sarah says the book could not have been written without fellow Quatrefoil members Jean Sheehan and Di Maywart, who have spent years collecting information about Basil, and in 2007 organised an exhibition about him in St Mary's Church. They invited visitors to write down their memories, which were a prime source of anecdotes and tributes. Basil was famous for cycling everywhere. He never owned a car, even setting off to travel the 30-plus miles to Sutton Hoo on his bike, I can't dissociate Basil from his bike, wrote an exhibition visitor. It was almost part of his anatomy, and I never knew a man who could cycle so slowly without falling off. Basil did, though, making the occasional exception by catching the bus to Berry. Jean was told he travelled upstairs on the double-decker for a better view of the changes in soil and crop colour caused by underlying remains. 
and another who knew him in later life recalled his crumpled tweed jacket, flat cap, small round glasses and false teeth that clattered as they tried to keep up with his animated jaw. <laughs> Visitors to the Browns' home remembered parts of it were like a fascinating museum and that books overflowing from his many bookcases were piled on the floor, much to May's disgust. That's what makes this book unique from any other that has been written about Basil. Real memories from people who knew him, says Sarah. Above all else, Basil is remembered for his constant willingness to make time for children and enthuse them about archaeology, says Sarah. Working away quietly, he was a huge inspiration to a whole new generation. Wherever he was digging, he made sure he always had children working alongside him. He was also a guiding light for archaeologists like Stanley West, who led the excavation and eventual reconstruction of the Anglo-Saxon village at West Stowe. Basil, who left school at 13, was, was, was driven by a passion for learning, looked to the stars as well as the soil, and wrote a book on astronomy in 1932. He said his fascination began at the age of five. He would often dig and dig and see what he could find, and when it got too dark, he would watch the stars. Today, a wander down the street in Ricking Hall is full of reminders of Basil, including the farmhouse where he spent some of his early life and later succeeded his father as tenant-farmer. Further along is the terraced cottage called Cambria, which was home to him and May, where Quatrefoil recently attached a blue plaque, and there, where, in a subtle tribute, the door-knocker is shaped like a tiny spade. <laughs> the Brown family came to Rickinghall when Basil was a few months old. His father worked at Church Farm and later took over the tenancy. It was a precarious living, and Basil began working on the farm the day after he left school. May and Basil met in Cromer and began married life at Church Farm in 1935 when he left farming and embarked on a career as an archaeologist. He was already recording all his digs and finds in meticulous detail in spidery handwriting, illustrated with drawings, sometimes in notebooks that were clearly second-hand. A meeting with Guy Maynard, curator of Ipswich Museum, led to him being employed as an archaeological excavator. The Romans were an early obsession, and among sites he excavated over time were numerous pottery kilns and a villa at Stanton Char Farm. In 1938 came the job that would propel him into the history books, although for some years his vital role was barely mentioned. He was employed by Edith Pretty, owner of Sutton Hoo, to investigate a series of mounds on her estate. Basil is described by people who knew him as unassuming, gentle and friendly but he was ready to stand up for himself when he knew he was right. He walked away from the early excavations rather than be dictated to because of the sceptical attitude of the Ipswich Museum president. In 1939, he was invited to return. A letter to May tells of the moment he realised the momentous nature of his found. I have found the other end of the ship, about 84 feet from one end to the other. It must have been the ship of a king or person of very great importance for one of the largest warships of the time to be used. But once the archaeological establishment took over, Basil was sidelined. It must have hurt. Gilbert Burroughs, who got to know him in the 1950s, recalled he spoke about it on a rare occasions. He didn't know, but I think it did cut very, very deep, he said. Gradually his role began to be recognised. At Cambria, a framed invitation to a royal garden party hung on the wall and he was awarded a civil list pension for services to archaeology. 
Now he's given full credit for his crucial part in the Sutton Hoo story. During the war, Basil worked for the NAFI and was also a special constable and a member of the ROC, which had an observation post on Botsdale Common. He then worked for a time as a boiler stoker at Culford School before being re-employed by Ipswich Museum until retiring aged 73. But he still carried on digging. He just wanted answers to everything and didn't like things he couldn't solve, says Sarah, who also had enthusiastic support from Suffolk County Council, Archaeological Service and Suffolk Archives, which show many of Basil's documents. He definitely had a knack and innate ability. There was intuition, but not without a lot of hard work involved. Primark is set to open its new Berries and Edmunds store in 2024. The fashion retailer was due to welcome customers to the highly anticipated branch on the ground and first floors of the former Debenhams at the Ark Shopping Centre by the end of this year. However, signs in the window on Friday said the store is set to open in 2024. When asked why the opening was delayed, a spokesman said, When we announce a new store, there are so many factors to take into consideration. While we always aim to give an accurate time frame to the best of our knowledge at the time, Sometimes this will change depending on when we take possession of the building, as it's only then we can begin getting the store ready. We're looking forward to opening a Berries and Edmunds store soon, and we think that it will be a worthwhile wait. The new branch will create 90 jobs, and the company has recently posted management vacancies. Everyman Cinema is set to move into the basement of the empty unit, a two-bed bungalow in a historic Suffolk town was featured on a much-loved BBC property show. The detached home in Bury St Edmunds was the first property on Homes Under the Hammer, with host Jackie Joseph touring the property. Standout features of the bungalow included a garage which could be converted into an additional bedroom and an outhouse with a bathroom which could be converted into a home, studio or office. It was bought in March 2023 by brothers Tom and Jonathan for £304,000. With a budget of £55,000 and a renovation time of three months, the brothers set to work in transforming the bungalow. The garage was renovated into a third bedroom with an ensuite, a wall in the kitchen was knocked down to make an open kitchen and living space, and the small conservatory was removed. The outhouse was given a fresh coat of paint, but was left unrenovated for future buyers to convert into what they need. In September 2023, Matt Taylor from Hart Estate Agents estimated the newly renovated bungalow could sell for around £450,000 or be rented for £1,700 per calendar month. A new crazy golf experience is set to open in a Suffolk town next month. Sneaky links will open its doors in Brent Govel Street in Bury St Edmunds in November, the first of its kind in the town. The nine-hole course has been created by owner Ben Cunningham, who is the founder of the town's first escape room, the Evidence Room. Everyone I speak to about Sneaky Link says, this is exactly what this town needs, so I'm giving the people of Bury St Edmunds what they want, said Mr Cunningham. Just like the evidence room, Sneaky Links has been another fantastic opportunity to work with local suppliers, from the stockist of the can bar and the we'll find a way trades, to the incredibly talented street artists and designers, this has been the ultimate collaborative undertaking. 
I feel incredibly proud to be able to contribute a new offering to Bury St Edmund's already thriving nightlife and entertainment scene. And this is only just the beginning for Sneaky Links. There's more to come. <laughs> it will open in the former Revel Outdoor Cycling Store. An opening date is yet to be announced. A £1 million fund has been launched in West Suffolk to help community organisations reduce carbon emissions and make energy savings. The first use of the Decarbonisation Initiative Fund, set up by West Suffolk Council, is to upgrade street lighting owned by parish or town councils to LED lanterns. The councils are being asked for their interest. Councillor Gerald Kelly, Cabinet Member for Governance and Regulatory, said, We are strengthening our commitment to climate action. The first call is an offer to fund work to bring streetlights owned by town and parish councils up to a modern standard. Converting to LED can reduce energy consumption by as much as 80%. We are also asking councils about other opportunities that could be supported in the future. And now we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. And we would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Harvey, Sue and Liz, it's goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.